Longtime oh. listener and uh, big fan of the show, uh, Robert Sullivan, uh, American, American, Bob, American Bob, um, did email me and said, no, I'm giving America way too much credit with this whole thing. We're not that smart. Right. Uh, he says, and I, 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 he doesn't think um, the US has been manipulating uh, the situation here with Russia and Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we're not so smart thing. I, I, I don't think it's about smart. I think it's about just um, cunning. And this is, right. you know, this is a playbook. The manipulation playbook, uh, as I've pointed out on the show, and I think I put it to Bob, It's it's been done before by the US government mm-hmm. um, many, many times. But oh, we're pros. I think the one that is is closest uh, to what I think is going on in Ukraine was when, according to Zbigniew Brzezinski, mm. they uh, de- he, he and Jimmy Carter deliberately baited uh, Russia into uh, the Afghanistan "quote unquote" invasion, and, and then got them to have to stick around for ten years instead of it yes. all being over. In a month, um, Brzezinski claims that they did that deliberately. Now, maybe he's maybe he's lying, but right. um, maybe that. he's maybe he's taking credit for something that didn't really happen after the fact. I but I, I tend to think that he really did, and, and, and we've seen it happen before. We go back to um, Iran, Mossadegh, mm-hmm. fifty three, fifty six, whatever it was, fifty three, I think. Uh, when they, you know, uh, uh, spun this whole story about communists taking over, and they right. they they went over there, or Kermit Roosevelt went over there with millions to bribe criminal organisations, <laughs> etc., to create chaos in the streets and blame it on the communists. Yeah. They have done this kind of stuff before. I mean, you read Tim Weiner's book on the CIA. Uh, or his book on the FBI. I mean, these sorts of things uh, have been done, do get done. Uh, it, it doesn't take a nation of smart people. It just takes a couple of smart people to be yeah. able to pull this stuff off in the State Department or the CIA or the Pentagon or a combination of those places. Right. So it has happened. Uh, so I think America is smart enough, but also powerful enough. Like it turns out you don't have to be that smart if you're really rich and powerful. <laughs> I think, God. I mean, There's, Tony Coniston is an example of that. Uh, right. I'm kidding. Tony's way He's smarter wicked, than wicked I'll ever smart. be. <laughs> wicked smart. Wicked, wicked smart. Yeah. Wicked <laughs> anyway, sanctions. Back to sanctions. Yes, um, sorry. So the, the questions I want to explore over this episode, maybe the next one, is uh, do they work? Have they ever worked? And, of course, are they legal? We've talked about the legality of sanctions before, but we'll touch on that again. Mm-hmm. But the big question is, do they work? Now, uh, you know, we, as we discussed whenever we talked about um, vaccines and that kind of stuff on the show, when you ask the question, does it work? And this is the problem with this question when it comes to sanctions too, is you have to clearly define what you mean by work. Yes, yes. What is your goal? That kind of thing, yeah. Exactly. Is it, mm-hmm. in fact, the goal that you say it is? Is your what? goal, is your real goal what you claim to be your goal or do you okay. really have another goal that is right. it? You have, you have your public-facing goal exactly. and your internal Goal. You have, you, you know, and, and, and this isn't, I mean, I don't think this is like crazy conspiracy theory talk. I think every organization does that. Certainly every mm-hmm. company I've ever worked for yes. in my corporate life Your had face. 
Public yeah. face, private face. This is what we say internally. This is what we say externally. <laughs> Right. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure that is true with with governments uh, as well as it is with, um, you know, your wife when she asks you, why yeah. do you want to buy another car? Yeah. You say, so I can, uh, you know, protect the safety of my loved ones. Right. I need something exactly. with the latest uh, Andy. All the features. Andy. Lasers. <laughs> Lasers, yes. All of that. <laughs> Anti anti missile defense systems uh, oh, yeah. built in. If it, if it doesn't have a Patriot system built into it, standard, mm. I don't want it. And really, you really want it because uh, you want a better class of prostitute to climb in your car when you yeah. Yeah. go bird dogging at three a.m. You're not wrong. The last prostitute kind of went. No, I don't think so. Yeah, that's I'm what not I getting knew. in that. I, okay, exactly. like, I have standards. It's I like, may be a streetwalker. Well, I'm like with one leg and no teeth. You're a hooker. But, exactly. Yeah, but uh, even she wouldn't get in your car anyway. So it's time. How do we define work? So over the last two decades, uh, international economic sanctions have become a much bigger tool in global coercion than they have oh, yeah. they have been previously. Right. Uh, you know, I think we, we're sort of so used to them now that we just kind of yawn even, when exactly. the U.S. puts sanctions on somebody. But, but they make it sound intense when they're first telling you about it. Oh, we're going to crush them, they're, you know, yeah. whatever. And, but oh, they didn't see this coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've read a couple of books in the last couple of weeks on on this topic, which I'll talk about uh, the books and uh, people can read right. them themselves. Now, but let's talk about sanctions. So sanctions typically involve states or international organizations attempting to coerce mm -hmm. a target government into making political changes right. by restricting uh, economic interactions with their territories, including trade and investment and finance and travel and all these right. sorts of things. Now, when you when you just look at that as a definition, uh, coercing target governments into making political changes by uh, applying pressures against their people, mm -hmm. terrorizing their people through economic means is, is basically terrorism. Like, yes. The definition of terrorism is, you know, using force to try and coerce target governments into making political changes. Right. Uh, that's what terrorism is. And uh, economic sanctions, when you really drill down into it, not only sound very similar, not only are very similar, I would argue are the worst kind of terrorism because of the numbers of people. You, you, you strap a bomb around your chest, yeah. Ray, and I know Probably that is... You, we've talked about this before. This is your plan for how you're going to go out. Uh, oh, big time. Now they will know my name, he says, <laughs> you know. And... So, yes, yes. State-sponsored, state state-sanctioned terrorism. But because the state sanctioned it, it's not illegal. Well, Beautiful it is system. illegal. We'll get into that too. But okay. if you strap a bomb to your chest and you go yes. to a, 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 where did you say you were going to go? A, a country music festival, I think it was. And, and, and you, you, you detonate. Right. You, you know, you, you might Done kill. A favor. You might oh, kill sorry, 20, 
20 people, right. 30 people, injure another right. 20, 30, 40 people, depending on the, the, the size of the explosives, I guess. And with your, ti- with your tiny little body, you're not going to be able to fit much on there. Like it's, it's uh, this, I told you this before. It's not the body. It's the size of the bomb and how you use it. <laughs> but with terrorism uh, applied for economic sanctions, oh, um, you can every- uh, yeah. kill and injure hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Yes. And that is, in fact, the intention of sanctions is to hurt as many people as possible. Right. Even with these so-called smart sanctions that we apply these days, we'll, we'll drill into that. Right. Uh, now, I said that we're doing it more now than ever. In the mid-20th century, there were only five countries. This is in the height of the Cold War. Height of the Cold right. War, there were only five countries being targeted with economic sanctions. Wow. By the year 2000, there were nearly 50 countries. Ten years mm-hmm. after the end of the Cold War, nearly 50 countries were under some form of economic sanctions. Right. Now, the general logic uh, that, that, that underpins sanctions is that if you cause economic pain in the target country, somehow you will end up with political gain. You will force that country somehow to stop what they're doing or not do something that they say they're going to do through some sort of material deprivation that you expect will somehow transform into political compliance. Now, I say somehow because, as we'll discover, Mm -hmm. according to the scholars that have studied this, guys that have written these books, no one really knows how these things are supposed to work. There's no clear model. For sanctions, it's kind of um, you know uh, something something dark side stuff. Like we're going to apply sanctions, and something 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 will happen, and then yeah. there'll be this yeah. outcome. But no one really knows exactly what that process would really look like in the real world, right? And, and the reason we don't know that is because it's never worked. It's pretty much. One time, it's worked one time, and we'll talk about that. But it's right. it's it out of a uh, hundred times it's been used. Yeah, it's worked maybe one time. Has it worked against Iran yet? It's only been forty something years. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to pop any day now. Any day now. Well, in Cuba, it's been seventy years. Any day now, years. the Cubans any... are going to give can, in. Yeah, they're weakening. Can I ask a, like it, we're yeah. testing their resolve. Yeah. If I if I can ask a serious question in your research, reading these books, um, I know like maybe since the 80s or 90s, the idea has been, at least it's been reported on the news, and this goes back to what you were saying about we're not really sure how this is supposed to work. Was it always the case or is this something newer where the, the idea that we'll put in we'll put in sanctions, uh, the people won't be able to get anything, they'll be frustrated, they'll rise up and they'll overthrow their leader or whatever, never mind that the leader's got all the guns and the people probably don't. When, when uh, maybe in the 1950s or whatever, was it just literally the idea of making a government uncomfortable so it um, either stops what it's doing or it starts doing something you want it to do? Or was it always, or was it always that idea that will make life so miserable for the people that they will try to rise up and get rid of their own government? 
I was just curious. Well, actually, what we'll see as we go through the history of it is, you know, um, and of course, um, in true Ray and Cam style, when we say we're <laughs> going to do the history, we're going to start in the year 3000 BCE and uh, like yeah, we'll, we'll work our way up over 400 <laughs> episodes until we... <laughs> No, it's not going to be like that. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll, do it. we'll race through this. But um, yeah, as, as we'll see, yeah. when they when modern economic sanctions were invented at the well after World War One, beginning of the twentieth century, uh, they weren't intended to be used. They were intended to be there as a threat. Oh, a bit like stick. nuclear weapons, and it was a, it was a right. tool of deterrence. deterrence. It was like ah ah ah. Don't yeah. do bad things make, because if you do, it. yeah, yep. we will pull this thing out of our cl- out of our cupboard, and you don't want that. Don't Three make me. I said that. Don't make yeah. me get the so, stick. You know, it's, it's what exactly. I say to so the, so the Chrissy idea on a daily it, basis. It would be so horrendous. You don't even want to think about what it would no. do to your country. So, so I okay. Yeah. It, it yeah. was the nuclear weapons of its time. Exactly. Before nuclear weapons, it was the nuclear nuclear weapon, yeah. So what happened was at the end of the Cold War, 1991, George H.W. Bush declared that there was a a new world order, as Mike Snyder uh, tried to tell us when he was on the show a while back. (laughs) Uh, But what he meant by that, what it seems is, um, you know, the... A world where the United Nations Security Council could uh, promote democracy and human rights and conflict mm-hmm. resolution, state building around the world. It's all going to be democracy and rainbows and unicorns and flowers and uh, everyone, but pure, only very, very straight sex. None of this right. rainbow sex thing going on. George W. H. W. Bush wouldn't have liked that. You get one yeah. position. You have to call yeah. it mother. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <clears throat> After the Cold War, you know, the US was in this position of unchallenged and unchallengeable power. Yes. yes. And, you know, as we've talked about, one of the problems with the NATO expansion, et cetera, et cetera, is this idea of US triumphalism. Mm-hmm. You know, what Kennan, George Kennan and Chomsky and Mearsheimer and Sakwar and uh, all of these guys, uh, Gorbachev, et cetera, have been complaining about for decades is this attitude of US triumphalism after the Cold War instead of saying okay let's let's uh, bring Russia into the fold now exactly. let's have you know a global Anonymous. community where yes. we all work together and respect each other's Put it behind us. different viewpoints Put it behind us. the US you know whipped out Double. their dick Double. pissed on Russia at every given opportunity and you know refused to let them join the EU or NATO or form these new organizations they wanted to form. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, they decided they could use force. Now that they were sort of the US, this is, and the US uh, allies, mm-hmm. you know, when I speak of the US, I'm including the, the, the de facto US empire, right? What they would call the yes. liberal world order. It's basically the US empire, right? So all of the mm-hmm. countries in the West that fall in line with the US because we kind of have to, right. um, decided they could apply force to countries they didn't like, either military force or economic force, to force them to get into line and, and do what we wanted them to do. So you know, initially there were instances of... 
uh, Iraq, you know, Gulf War One, Somalia, Haiti. Um, and some of these involve the UN uh, applying economic sanctions. Right. 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 Now, during the Cold War itself, we had very high-profile embargoes on countries like Rhodesia, the Soviet Union, of course, and also South Africa, which I briefly mentioned in our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general consensus today on all of those is that those embargoes failed to accomplish yes. the stated objectives stated. anyway. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about uh, South Af- the South African example uh, later on. But in the mid-1980s, uh, the viewpoint was very different about sanctions. In the mid-1980s into the, into the early 90s, the viewpoint in scholarship was that sanctions actually worked about one-third of the time. Okay. Uh, today, scholars tend to take the view that it works uh, at best about 5% of the time. Right. Um, very, very bad track record of we, success. We still do it. We still do it. We love it. We think mm-hmm. we're we're hurting the other guy that they deserve it because I mean, for the average I don't know about other countries, but for the average American, we're like, ooh, sanctions. We're going to cripple your economy, and because mm-hmm. we're all capitalists, we think that's the worst thing you can do to another person. And it but is it pretty out, bad. That, well, and it is pretty bad. Like in the scale of things, and we'll talk about some numbers later on. In the okay. scale of things, embargoes, sanctions are the worst thing that you can do to somebody. Because they, they inflict a collective punishment against the entire population that can result in not only loss of life um, yeah. because people can't get access to medicines and things like that, but, you know, it's multi-generational. Like mm-hmm. a war, like a, like a, like a military war, is like a boots-on-the-ground mm-hmm. war is or a hot war. It's multi-generational. You can, you can pull a country back by decades or generations using these things, and, and, wow. and, and it has been done, which is one of the reasons why the United Nations doesn't use them anymore. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the United Nations applied them brutally to Iraq uh, during the, the whole Kuwait invasion, Gulf War One, and But by the early 90s, when some of the numbers started to come out of Iraq, of what the impacts of that were, the UNSC, the Security Council, sort of was like, holy shit, we, we got to stop doing this because yeah. their reports were coming out. And Madeleine Albright famously defended this. Um, you know, mm-hmm. She died recently, Clinton Secretary yeah. of State, and she was famously interviewed, I think, on 60 Minutes. This is going back many, many years, but I've played this clip before where um, journalists said, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dead children in Iraq as a result of your sanctions, was it worth it? And um, Madeleine Albright said, yes, it was. Um, And when she was being, you know, applauded uh, on a recent demise by Americans and Hillary Clinton, I was like, yeah, really? Fuck. I I, I decided not to play that clip um, or promote that clip because it – just get me in more fucking conversations than I can be bothered with. But, um, yeah, the, the, the result of the sanctions against Iraq, the embargoes against Iraq, um, the UN hasn't applied any since then, you know, for the last right. nearly 20 years, yeah. uh, 20, 30, uh, 30 years, fuck, because they were like, shit, that's that's really bad. We, we can't be yeah. going around killing hundreds of thousands of dead children. That's, that's not a good look. Right. 
So, uh, yeah. Just real quick, the other part of that, I had read that same statistic, like 500,000, 600 and something people in uh, that country died over the years because they couldn't get access to various things, like you said. But you and I know the leaders, the elite, the well-to-do, whatever, they were still getting what they needed. So again, for the most part. So again, this this is a sanction that hurts. A lot of these sanctions hurts the average person. The people who are in power, don't worry about them. They're going to be just fine. It's the average guy on the street that suddenly can't get food, medicine, whatever for his kids and family. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we, we've seen leaks in the last few years, the Panama Papers, etc. Yes. We know that, you know, any rich person worth their soul has got their money scrawled away and hidden through, you know, 15 different uh, shelf companies. Uh, so, you know, when you apply sanctions, how are you grabbing all of that kind of stuff? They're not really. They're just exactly. taking a small percentage of the most publicly visible stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that's happened since then, since the 90s, um, is this idea of applying smart sanctions. Well, we're just going to target government officials and the elite of these countries. We're not right. going to target the, the masses. But as we'll see, these things are fairly dumb tools and they don't really work that way. I mean, economic right. pain does end up hitting uh, the country and the people uh, massively. Like the, the you know, if you read some of the latest economic analysis of the current sanctions against Russia, they're talking about the economy uh, declining 10, maybe 20% this year. Yeah. Um, prices are soaring. This is hurting the people. This is collective punishment against an entire population, which yes. is illegal under international law. So we'll, we'll mm. get to that later on. Right. Good point. Um, so by the mid-2000s, uh, sanctions were being regularly imposed, uh, primarily by the United States and their allies against other countries, mm -hmm. despite zero evidence as to their efficacy. Um, and, and that leads to a huge question. So you have to ask, if these things, there's no proof that they work, why do we keep doing them? Now, I think you nailed it. Uh, you know, I was as surprised as anyone uh, on the last episode when you said it's what we can do. Yeah, right. they probably don't work, but we have to be seen to be doing something. So we yeah. do something, even though they probably yeah. we know it probably won't work. And I do think that's part of the answer. I think there's more to it than that. Right. But I do think that's a big part of it. You know, it's it's what we have. It's what we've got. Right. It's what we can and, do. It, it's a, and it's I don't a, have to die. It's symbolic. Exactly. No, yeah. you don't have to die. Right. A lot of other people might die, but as long as you don't die, it's okay. Good. Me and God yeah. are good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as I said, you know, reading these books by these scholars, um, mm. who I'll get to in a second, they're both saying uh, not only is there no evidence that sanctions work, but there's no evidence that anyone knows how they would work if they would work. There's no right. evidence about how deprivation and civilian pain is supposed to lead to political gain. It's a lot of um, then something, something, something will happen and then we'll get this result. Um, yes. Lee Jones, who's a senior lecturer in international politics at Queen Mary University of London and a research associate at the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University, 
wrote a book in 2015 that I read called Societies Under Siege, Exploring How International Economic Sanctions Do Not Work. Right. And in a, a, a quote from him out of this, he said, the logic of sanctions expressed by most policymakers and analysts is deceptively simple. Imposing economic costs either directly prompts the target state to revise its cost-benefit analysis of its current policies or indirectly causes domestic discontent and pressure on the government, leading to a change in its behaviour. However, despite extensive sanctions scholarship, the question of how we get from the imposition of economic sanctions to a potential change in policy has been left virtually unexplored. Yeah. And the devil's in the details. We know this. It's like they put it out there and then they hope for the best. And, and I just want to give one quick stat to uh, back you up what you're saying. In 2015, a UN official estimated that one third of the world's population was in a country that was under some form of economic sanction. So one third of every human being is in a country that's being sanctioned. Um, however they do it, they have found a way to get on with their lives. Like, like Iran's found a way to get on, you know? And so again, this is just something that doesn't really do anything, but it makes us feel good. It's easy. And no one on our side has to die. So it, in some ways it's the perfect thing, but it still seems to be more of a gesture than anything else. Yeah. Uh, another book I read by a guy called Nicholas Mulder, Fox's mm -hmm. half-brother. Uh, he's an assistant professor in the history department of Cornell University in New York. I've been there. That's my alma mater. Uh, cool. I didn't for, know that. Went there yeah. for a week. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> came out with a book in January 22 called The Economic Weapon, which is a history of economic sanctions. Mm. Um, so we'll get into a little bit about that. Um, he says, uh, well, this is Mulder. This is from an article he wrote too. He said, the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, has declared that the West will wage economic and financial total war against Russia. Um, so that is the way that economic sanctions are perceived by the West as right. total war. We're crushing them. Yeah. Well, well, total war being, you know, we're going to target everything and everyone. Uh, right. But we're not, we're not with bombs, but with no. economic restrictions. Yes. So it is, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've said this on our Cold War show uh, many, many times, you know, mm -hmm. explaining... Uh, you know, the, the, the embargoes that the U.S. put on Japan pre-Pearl Harbor. Right. And, uh, you know, explaining, well, that is an act of war. Economic yeah. sanctions, economic embargoes are an act of war against another country. So then when they turn around and bomb your ships in Pearl Harbor, you can't say, oh, my God, no. it was unprovoked. We didn't see this Sucker coming. Sucker punched. Yeah. What? Yeah. No, you'd already declared war on them. Right. Uh, just in a sneaky, sneaky way. Uh, so it's, it's important to it's important to understand that these things are and always have been a tool of war. But when they get used in peacetime, that's big difference ah. to what's happened previously. We'll get into that in a second. But this is getting Good back point. to Mulder. Mm -hmm. He says, um, if the goal of the West's economic war is to end Mr. Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine, then historical experience suggests different measures will be needed. 
Sanctions alone have a poor record of halting military adventures. During the 20th century, only three out of 19 attempts to use sanctions as a policy to impede war have been successful. Two of these were the work of the League of Nations. It nipped in the bud incipient border wars in the Balkans between Yugoslavia and Albania in 1921 and between Greece and Bulgaria in 1925. But that's apples and oranges. I mean, these are smaller, weaker countries with smaller economies. They would probably feel it a lot more than, say, Russia does. And so I'm not surprised that it was maybe able to pull them back from the precipice of war, but it's apples and oranges. That's not going to work on Russia like it's going to work on a smaller nation, in my opinion, based on what I've read over the last 48 hours. That's true. There's a mm-hmm. there's a big difference. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, Russia is the largest economy ever to be hit with economic sanctions like this. But the important thing to know about those two instances, Yugoslavia and Albania in 1921, right. Greece and Bulgaria in 1925, is it was only the th- – it was the threat – of sanctions, not the actual application of sanctions that we use. The third case out of the 19 in the 20th century that he points Mm -hmm. to, the third case, the one where it actually worked during uh, an an actual conflict Mm -hmm. um, was it was they were applied by the United States against the United Kingdom its ally in 1956 We're an asshole. to force yeah. an end to the Suez crisis when oh, Britain right. and France, UK and France, were attacking Egypt over control yes. of the Suez Canal. And the US applied sanctions to its ally. So the only time it's ever they've ever worked to prevent or, or end impede a conflict was when the U.S. applied them against the United Kingdom, its ally. Let me me take a leap of, first of all, that's amazing. Uh, And I think you have to agree with me that America is the nicest asshole you'd ever want to meet. But let me take a leap of faith here. Is there any chance that some people in the State Department, CIA, whatever, because we know how you can believe whatever you want to believe if you narrow your eyes enough, Maybe some people look at those three instances and go, you know, see, we don't know, but sometimes it does work. So let's keep trying it. I know that's a bit of a reach because now we're looking at what's going on now where we're doing it left, right and center in peacetime. It's not having the, redu- the desired results, but I can't help but think that there's some humans out there going, it's worked before. Maybe it'll work again. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of... Um Interesting differences between applying it to an ally right. and applying it to an enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, the, 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 this idea that if you apply economic pain to the people, right. they will overthrow their government, it doesn't really seem to play out. What tends to happen is when you apply economic pain towards a people, the government of those people go... Look what those people are doing to us. They're trying to take over our country. Our enemies are trying to force us to change our way of life and to, you know, blah, 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 blah. We have a common enemy. Well, exactly. Whereas if you're applying it to an ally, it's very hard for the ally to go, oh, look at our ally. They're trying to force us to do something. 
Yeah. Just real quick, and just just a historical point. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, the UK was still suffering economically in food and everything like that. I think they just recently got off, or maybe they haven't even got off um, whatever you call it, limitations or quotas or whatever when it comes to food. So I can see that being more effective against the UK at that particular time. But again, yeah. Russia is a whole different animal. Sorry, go ahead. The only other time that a state as large or with similar sort of uh, heft as Russia uh, has right. been hit with economic sanctions in order to rein in aggression was in 1935 when the League of Nations applied them against Mussolini's Italy, which at the time was the world's seventh largest economy mm. uh, for uh, for invading Ethiopia in 1935 right. and um, had no effect, didn't stop Mussolini at all. But look, the, the idea of blockades, economic blockades um, during wartime have been around almost yeah. since the dawn of history. Yeah, that's um, what you do. You know, going right back to the Peloponnesian War, 432 BCE, Athens were placing a commercial ban against the port city of Megara um, in order to weaken them during war. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've got evidence of these things being used as tools as far back as you want to go. People who fans of Napoleon know about his, you know, continental system, sort of trying to blockade the UK. Uh, but then in 1919, after the end of World War One, the creation of the League of Nations, they, they came up with this idea for using economic sanctions during peacetime, not just as a tool of war. When this is a right. big innovation, a preemptive, pre. Yeah, preemptive war in peacetime. It's a peacetime war, is what it is. Um, it was sort of they were they were the, this idea was championed uh, 1919 by a, a Britishman and a Frenchman, Lord Robert Cecil and uh, Leon Bourgeois. Um, they came up with the idea of using economic sanctions to force, you know recalcitrant countries to get on board and right. stop what they're doing. But again, it was supposed to be used just as a threat. If you don't cut that shit out, I'm going to no. take away your pocket money, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, but today they're thought of as an alternative to war when, in right. fact, uh, you know, as we know from the quote by the French finance minister, Le Maire, you know, they are actually a tool of war, total war. Right. Because they attack everyone, non-combatants, uh, the elderly, uh, women, children, civilians, etc. Right. If I could real quick, just um, temporarily or whatever the proper word is, defending the notion of that Englishman, the Frenchman and Woodrow Wilson, who had a, a great quote about this is so awesome, this, this will get rid of war, whatever. If you think about it just for a second, at the end of World War One, which was so horrific, just, you know, trench warfare, whatever, the idea that these two guys came up with something that would hopefully um, make war a thing of the past from from now on. I mean, I can see why they were excited, but again, it hadn't been tested yet. It was just an idea in their heads. But you've got to give them credit. I guess to a degree for trying to come up with something, well, that, that war was absolutely horrible. What can we come up with to try to never go through that again? 
So I think their heart was in the right place. But again, the devil's in the details. And it depends on how you apply it and who you apply it to. Yeah. So I, I applaud their sure. attempt. They yeah. were thinking. They were having a they go. Were <laughs> In 1919, uh, Woodrow Wilson, <clears throat> U.S. president at the time, called the idea of economic sanctions during peacetime something more tremendous than war. He said the threat was an absolute isolation that brings a nation to its senses just as suffocation removes from the individual all inclinations to fight. It's the chokeout. We're going to choke you out. (laughs) Apply this economic, peaceful, silent, deadly remedy. It's both peaceful and deadly. Right. Yeah. Silent and deadly. It's what he also (laughs) called his farts. It's Peaceful and deadly. There you go. I mean, right. That's Peaceful you can't get more American, Ray, than right. to call something both peaceful and deadly. I think that's a coffee mug in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Economic, peaceful, silent, deadly remedy, and there will be no need for force. Oh, uh, there it is, right it, there. It actually, it's it's deadly, but it's not force. Yeah. Not. I'm it not is dead. a. It is a terrible remedy. It does not cost a life outside of the nation boycotted, but it brings a pressure upon that nation, which, in my judgment, no modern nation could resist. He thought that thoughtful men have thought and thought truly that war is barbarous, that boycott is an infinitely more terrible instrument of war. So it's peaceful, but it's an instrument of war. It's peaceful... But it's deadly. It's deadly. It's peaceful, it's a, but it's a terrible remedy. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, like, there's pick no it. force, but people will die. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> pick, a, pick a fucking story and stick to it, Woodrow. Like, Jesus. Woody. Come on, Woody. William Arnold Forster, who was a British blockade administrator. I want that job said that during the Great War, we tried, just as the Germans did, to make our enemies unwilling that their children should be born. We tried to bring about such a state of destitution that those children, if born at all, should be born dead. Um, that's intense. That's a Nazi-level fight, but okay. I want their families dead. I want their <laughs> dogs dead. I'm choking <laughs> By the way, have you seen the uh, new Batman film? No, I'm looking forward to it. I'm still doing uh, billions, but did you see it? Yeah, it's not good. But um, there are some there are some good aspects to it, right? But like as a film, Maggie. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's 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 like you're capable of it still, <laughs> so that's something, you know. Thank you to but the my, little blue pills, but you know you're capable of it. Right, yeah, well, everything's right, right. off. Yeah, yeah. Well, they right. they made a movie. If I have to, like, well, they did something, so they, I have to yeah. give them credit for that. No, look, there are some interesting aspects to it that I found it, um, enjoyable. But as a film, it's just kind of boring and pointless. But oh. but the best thing about it, for my money, is Colin Farrell who plays the Penguin. Right. But he's made up to look like Robert De Niro in The Untouchables playing Al Capone because, oh, you know, the Penguin perfect. is supposed to be yeah. basically Al Capone. He's like, well, he's, he's, he's a gangster, right? So right, you've right, got Colin right. Farrell in him very, very uh, – he's almost unrecognisable in this Robert De Niro prosthetic makeup 
mm-hmm. and performing it as De Niro did Al Capone in The Untouchables. It's fantastic. It's so much fun. Really great. Great performance. He's doing this over-the-top De Niro performance. It's fucking gold. Anyway. Um, director said, can you give me more? Yeah, it's way over the top, but but go, I love it. It's the best thing about the film. Save the film for my money. Right. Anywho, um, oh. how'd they get under that? Oh, Born Dead, yes. But yeah. as I said earlier, they were first seen as a, seen as a form of deterrence, a threat mm-hmm. like nuclear weapons not to be used, but they were used. And like all of these things, once they get used, it's a slippery slope. It's well, hard. we used them yeah. once, we use them again. Fortunately... That hasn't happened with nuclear weapons post uh, August 1945 uh, yet, right. but uh, with the, with these things, they've been used a lot. Yeah, um, and not only were they used, but up until the creation of nuclear weapons, economic sanctions were the deadliest form of war ever seen. Right. This is the That's thing that something. we have to understand. They're not just a form of war. They're the deadliest form of war outside of nuclear weapons. And they're indiscriminate. Innocent people in the streets are going to die. No food, no medicine, whatever. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it's heinous. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the three major anti-civilian weapons of the interwar period between Mm -hmm. World War I and World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, air power, uh, uh, chemical weapons, gas mm-hmm. warfare, right. and economic sanctions. It becomes clear that sanctions were the deadliest in that yeah. period. In World War One, between three to four hundred thousand people died of um, starvation and illness caused by blockades. It's been calculated roughly. Right. Um, that was just in Central Europe. In, in the Ottoman Empire, another half a million uh, mm-hmm. people died as a result of blockades. Um, right. Before World War II, these hundreds of thousands of deaths mm-hmm. from economic sanctions were the number one man-made cause of civilian death in 20th century conflict. World War II took like it that. to another that, level, you know, just right. firebombing cities, etc. But um, the difference between aerial bombing and, and gas warfare, chemical warfare, of course, and economic sanctions is that economic sanctions are hard to see. You can't take photos of economic sanctions. You can't take right. video of economic sanctions. You can't interview a sanction. <laughs> yeah. Talk to it, yeah. Um, Arnold Forster, the British blockade administrator, worried that the economic weapon is one which is so infernally convenient to use Mm. that it naturally commends itself to those who sit in offices. Pens seem so much cleaner instruments than bayonets and can be handled by the amateur with so much less exertion, so much less realisation of the consequences. Easy to use. Um, and hard to see the true effects. Like you can get lots of positive headlines. Oh, we took away this millionaire's yacht or this guy's thing, or we've blocked this bank account or we've done this. And 
it looks, you know, it looks great, easy it's press release. Oh, well, you're really getting tough there, aren't you? What you don't, but you know, you don't have to. Uh, it's it's hard to you know say. Well, here are the millions of dead people, or hundreds of thousands of dead or sick people as a result. Mm-hmm. Harder to get photos and make the connection between one thing and the other thing in the right. eyes of, of the audience. Um, you know, for Arnold Forster said their coercive power was administered not out of the cockpit of a bomber. <coughs> or through the breach of a cannon, but from behind a mahogany desk. Yeah. One one American commentator said, sanctions are special because their field of operations is not a visible terrain, but a force is exerted just the same. And he even oh made God. that. He even made that rhyme, so he gets extra points, <laughs> extra points for that. But you're right. Some guy, edit or girl, late woman, sits at a desk, signs a form. It goes through the proper channels. The banks are contacted. Customs are contacted. So there's activity. But, yeah, I just had to get it started by signing a form or, or letter or whatever. Yeah, it's it's easy to do. But it's on the other end, even though you really can't see the consequences and you're not sure when they're going to take effect, there are going to be people that are suffering on the other end who are not guilty of anything except for existing in a certain country. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't do anything. They, you know, yeah. they just, they were just born there. Yeah. Uh, now, trivia question, right? Uh, after the creation of the idea of economic sanctions during peacetime in 1919, mm-hmm. who are the first countries it was applied to and when your time starts now? Oh, uh, it's, it's gotta be the freaking Germans, but I, I don't know. I'm not thinking uh, Greeks, Germans. Who else don't I like? No, I'm just joking. Really hard to think with you doing that. Uh, Uh, That's the whole idea of the (laughs) thinking clock. It's to fuck with you. Who who got the honor of the first sanctions? A little country called Russia was the first country to be hit with economic sanctions. (laughs) Good point. A little tiny country called Russia. Right. Russia and Hungary in 1919 were the mm. first to be hit with economic sanctions. So Russia's got a long here. history about yeah. being hit with yeah. sanctions, by the way. It's 100 years I, of sanctions. I, I wanted to ask you real quick, because this is human nature. The second someone comes up with the idea of what a sanction should be, another person's going to come up with an idea of how to get around those. It's just it's just human nature. Oh, there's a new thing that's out. Well, just let's just play this thought game for a second. In case this ever happens to us, what could we do to either prepare for it or deal with it? So again, you can't have one without the other. And I'm sure people have been thinking it through. And we're going to go into Putin later, but he certainly did build up a sizable war chest uh, before he pulled the trigger on going into Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's one of the things that we've learned over the last hundred years of applying economic sanctions is that countries have figured out how to, what they call, harden their economy. Exactly. Uh, uh, you know, not be as exposed to the, the effects of international sanctions if they expect them to be coming. They've learned how to do that. Yeah. Um, now, this, this whole idea of... of Economic sanctions to enforce, uh, you know, one idea of an international order is is a modern invention. Um, Tariffs, of course, have been around for a long time. They're a form of trade sanction. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. We, you know, and we need to distinguish between, I guess, trade sanctions and embargoes and blockades and economic sanctions in peacetime. Um, you know, the, the, there's a difference in a way between how customs tariffs are applied and why they're applied. You know, mm-hmm. they're not applied usually to punish a country. They're, they're a protection mechanism. They're yes. applied to protect your domestic industries. Mm-hmm. Um, economic sanctions are offensive in nature. They're designed as an attack weapon, not as a protective mechanism. Um, now, you know, we'll get into the legality of all of those sorts of things because at an international level, all of these things are sort of complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, the key difference is that sanctions are imposed on their target from the outside, whereas tariffs are applied on the inside. Your product's coming in to our country. Oh. We're going to put tariffs on them. Sanctions, we're targeting you externally. Okay. Now, in the mid-17th century, the term blockade was being used in most European countries uh, as a term for besieging a city or a nation, an island, a territory. Right. Uh, and a blockade was a belligerent act. You would mm-hmm. surround a country, try and stop it from getting access to you know, trade ships and, and supplies, those sorts of things. Right. But a blockade happened during a state of war. You know, you had to formally declare war on a country before you could implement a blockade. They were a form of combat, not not an administrative exercise. Yeah. But while you were in a state of war, you could apply blockades, which obviously had impacts against uh, the civilians of the country. That's what it was designed to do again. Mm -hmm. But when a peace treaty was signed, the blockade was supposed to be over. You would lift the blockade. That was... Because the reason for it, exactly, and that's the yeah. that's the reason for people to sign the peace treaty is to lift the blockade, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, a second limitation to a blockade was material. Um, you know, you, you you had economic war in this sort of period designed primarily to degrade the. The, the, the income and resources of your rival state, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with that is that a lot, of the, a lot of these countries in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries were somewhat self-reliant. Uh, wow. You know, yeah. agriculturally, they were, you know, self-sufficient, growing their own crops, mining their own resources, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is before, uh, you know, the idea. I mean, and there were there were big economic blocks, I, I guess, too. You had, you, you know, your British economic block, your Spanish economic block, your French, mm-hmm. etc. So they had access to trade with other countries that, you know, wouldn't be part of a blockade, at least willingly. Right. Uh, it was much more difficult to blockade a country or apply economic sanctions in a world where countries were self-sufficient. When we moved into a world of free trade, open trade in the early 20th century, right. you know, we've talked about this uh, a lot in our Cold War series about America's open door policy that they were mm-hmm. selling heavily in the late 19th century because America wanted to get open access to China primarily. 
And then it, it became sort of the American mandate of f- pushing free trade because America wanted to have uh, access, end the economic blocks and have access to every right. country. Right. And, you know, the, the, the collapse of the economic blocks in World War Two as a result of World War One and World War II, uh, the American dominance, hegemony, global economic mm-hmm. hegemony, led to more open trade, but that also made it easier to apply sanctions to countries now because countries became more and more reliant exactly. on getting goods and services. Uh, yeah, now it hurts. And, and, and money from right. outside nations, right? So now yeah. you, you get them hooked on trade and then you can block the trade and right. fuck their countries up big time. So it's... It's evolved as a result of that as well in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Now, after World War I, uh, Britain wanted to continue the, the wartime blockades against Germany and Russia. Um, but some people spoke out against that, including our old friend, um, little fat piggy, Winston Churchill. Um, <laughs> he was Britain's state secretary for war and he had opposed the blockades from the start. He said mm-hmm. it is repugnant to the British nation to use this weapon of starvation, which falls mainly upon the women and children, upon the old, the weak and the poor, after all the fighting has stopped. One moment longer than is necessary to secure the just terms for which we have fought. Wow. Well said. I think he was serving a purpose, but well said. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if he continued to think that way uh, no, in his second, no. by the time I'd he got his second term in the 50s when he was get, oh, I asking the US to invade Iran and overthrow their right. uh, prime minister because uh, they wanted to get more sense on the oil dollar. But <laughs> I who think knows? you're leaning towards no as well. Yeah, don't know. But anyway, that's a quote from Winston <laughs> Churchill at the time. Right. It is a weapon of starvation which is repugnant to the British nation, should be repugnant. Oh, Cheryl tapped in. She said, not that this is a criticism, but the next time you do that, if you could do it in the church of voice. <clears throat> oh, yeah. It, w- Sorry. it would help what her get to What am I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Bottle of champagne, smoking cigars, yes. It is repugnant to the British nation to use this weapon of starvation which falls mainly upon the women and children, upon the old, the weak, and the poor. After all the fighting has stopped, one moment longer than is necessary to secure the just terms for which we have fought. Ideally, the Allies should use our land forces as a pressure tool For without this power, we have no means whatever of influencing or guiding the course of events in Europe, except by starving everybody into Bolshevism. Continuing it would throw Germany into the hands of the Bolsheviks, and so give the Soviet government of Russia a fresh lease on life. The aim behind unofficially blockading Russia while re-establishing trade with Germany is precisely to avert such a German-Russian behemoth. So, partly, starvation of civilians bad, but also, and I think this is really where Churchill's head was at. Yes, yes. If you starve people, you're going to drive them into the hands of the Bolsheviks. They'll go communist. Hungry people, suffering people 
are very open to communism or to any other, you know, into in any forms of extremism. So he didn't want to push them there. So I knew if you read enough, there'd be a self-serving element to his quote. And that, of course, was the, the, the thinking behind the Marshall Plan as well. Right. Okay, if these countries are poor, destroyed mm-hmm. post-World War II, they're Hope probably going to turn to communism, socialism. Right. Uh, let's give them money, uh, 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 well, well, sort of give them a lot of credit to buy our shit, but uh, uh, with the caveats that they uh, don't allow any communists or socialists in their country. It worked. Um, the you know they they had tried to starve the Russians into abandoning abandoning Bolshevism with the sanctions, uh, right. the blockades right. that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and it hadn't worked. Um, mm. So they they changed their minds, uh, the the British and the Americans and the French, and decided that instead of trying to punish the Russians, the Bolsheviks of resources, they would now try to supply them and show them the abundance that capitalism had to offer. Um, So carrot, not stick. Okay. Yes. And when there were massive famines in southern Russia later that year, the Western humanitarians, including Armand Hammer, I know, um, which is a great, great story. Right. If you've never read Armand Hammer's uh, autobiography, it's uh, mm. fascinating. But he, he was okay. like, he was 21 years old, and he, from memory, I read this like 30 years ago, 21 years old, he hired a tanker and took medical supplies to Russia and pens oh, and pencils and stuff like that uh, and unloaded it there. And in return, they said, Lenin said, what do you want? And he said, what do you got? And they said, well, we've got all these um, Fabergé eggs and all of these like uh, Renaissance paintings that we don't have any need for. Do you want them? And he goes, he's like, fuck yeah. Give me all all of your artworks, son. And he (laughs) took them back to the US and made himself into a multimillionaire with his massive art collection. Just one good break. That's all I need. It was clever. I mean, it came from yeah. money anyway, but um, it's not like you know, I could go out and just hire a fucking tanker any day no. of the week. Um, <laughs> but, yes, that's what they tried to do. Right. So uh, Lloyd George as well, who was a prime minister of the UK at the time, went from being mm-hmm. a blockader to a trader. This idea that commercial connections into a country could have a stronger impact on their behaviour than economic sanctions. And again, right. big part of the thinking behind the Marshall Plan, right? Re- yeah. Let's help them rebuild. That will make them like us more. You know, we're going to have more influence if we help them rebuild. And also if we, you know, use the, uh, the, the carrot of money to get them to kick out all of the troublemakers in their country as well that, oh. are, that are arguing for socialism yeah. and for communism. Yeah, all to the good. Uh, a British diplomat who visited some of the deprived cities of Germany in 1919, said it is better to feed an idealist than to fight him. It is only those who fast who see visions. So that was a good quote. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like that. And it's accurate as hell. Yeah. Um, but fast forward, as we said before, the, the sanctions against Iraq in the 90s led to hundreds of thousands of lives and, and according to the United Nations, permanently damaged the... Yes. 
social and economic fabric of the country. Well, it changes the culture too, doesn't it? Because suddenly you can grow up and not do anything wrong and your country is sanctioned for years. You're going to see the suffering. You're going to know who did it. You're, and for no I mean, it didn't have to happen, but now you hate America or you hate the West. And maybe you'll grow up and you'll teach your kids to hate uh, the West as well. And so it, be, it almost becomes this self-perpetuating hate machine. Um, and it's not getting anything done anyways. Uh, again, it's the common people that are suffering. Yeah, and as you say, they don't look at the starvation and say, oh, Saddam Hussein, exactly. you bad guy, you did exactly. this to us. They go, fucking America yeah. did this to us. Fuck, fuck all y'all. Which is why exactly. you then send an army and deliberate them. And right. 20 they're years later, people. they're like, fuck off and get out of our country. Yeah. Um, and shoot yeah. at you as you're leaving. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was in Afghanistan, but I don't think the right. Iraqis were much yeah. nicer. But the, one of the great ironies of this is that the countries who were the most vocal opponents of sanctions in the mm-hmm. interwar period became the biggest uh, and avid, most avid users of them after World War II. In 1929, Herbert Hoover... Mm-hmm. U.S. president at the time, mm-hmm. who was a neutralist and a humanitarian internationalist, was calling economic, the idea of peacetime sanctions as an un-American practice, an anachronistic sure. form of European-style imperialism. Right. Love it. Um, he said, uh, uh, no, I don't have a quote from him, actually. Fuck it. But the the... The world's de facto headquarters for sanctioning uh, officially moved from the United Nations in New York through to the uh, national security institutions in Washington. It's yes. um, it's not really the UN that's doing these things these days. It's Washington, um, and the aims of the aims of the economic pressure have expanded too. Um, you know, supposedly sanctions used since World War Two have been used to not just stop wars, but to address human rights violations, mm-hmm. to convince dictatorships to give way to democracy, to end nuclear programs like in Iran, to punish uh, criminals, to press for the release of political prisoners like in maybe South Africa, um, mm-hmm. or, or to obtain other concessions. They're the tool that you can use for anything now. Uh, we just we don't like the cut Please. of your jib. Economic sanction, <laughs> boom. You get an economic sanction. You get an economic sanction. You get an... It's the Oprah school well, of economic one size, sanctions. Exactly. One size fits all. Yeah. Um, now, of course, uh, during the Cold War, sanctions and blockades were targeting socialist states, Soviet Union, Communist China, North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after decolonization, uh, there were African and Asian states wanted to use sanctions against the white settler regimes. Um, to end, I like where this is going. well, to end things like apartheid, 
in South sure. Africa and, and in, in Rhodesia. Now, I mentioned South Africa on the last show and I just asked, did it did it really have anything to do? So according to Lee Jones, again, his book Societies Under Siege, he's an Oxford scholar. Right. He says the contribution of sanctions against South Africa's apartheid regime was actually mod- rather modest and ultimately determined by contextual factors. Um, The role of stagflation, the oil and debt crises of 70s and 80s, he believes had a much bigger role to play in the downfall of the apartheid regime and the regime in Rhodesia than international economic sanctions. But did the sanctions get credit? They got some credit and they probably deserve a little bit of credit, he says, but not much. He writes, the South Africa case, the most frequently invoked basis for such analogical reasoning in terms of supporting Mm -hmm. sanctions, Mm -hmm. has very peculiar features that are simply not present elsewhere. The key features that made sanctions work in South Africa as they did were widespread popular politicization and mobilization stemming from decades of grassroots organizing, so the mm-hmm. African National Congress, Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela, decades of yes. decades and decades of trying to build, a, you know, Trip, grounds sure. full of support. Yes, the presence of a large working class, predominantly in the opposition camp. Mm-hmm. That helps. The existence of a capitalist elite, independent of state control or patronage. The oh. immediate 1980s context of structural economic crisis. And mm-hmm. the economy's dependency on transactions with the West—that's a—that's a big thing. That's a, um, yeah, that, that's a lot that, of pressure. Had, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure points, I guess. The pressure points. Yeah. He writes. Furthermore, the peculiar nature of apartheid as a racialized system of minority domination made it harder for ruling elites to co-opt opponents and develop new strategies and easier for resistance leaders to build broad-based support. These Mm. features are simply not present in many other contexts. So the the whole fact that, you know, the, the, the ruling elite in South Africa was pushing for apartheid you know, the, you know, dominating, uh, you know, as a white minority dominating a right. black majority, very hard for them to turn around and say, oh, no, we're the good guys. Look, it's the West that's <laughs> right. oppressing us. Look, we're being oppressed by the West to their black population. Right. Uh, very difficult to sell that story. <laughs> it was a flawed system. Yes. As opposed to these other countries where they don't have that kind of, exactly. you know, uh, uh, domestic you situation. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. The Iranian Revolution uh, in the late 70s prompted the U.S. campaign of economic pressure against the Islamic Republic, which, as you said before, has lasted for four decades, Mm -hmm. continues this day with varying effects on on Iran's policies and aims, but it, it doesn't, I mean, it certainly hasn't changed, hasn't ended the uh, uh, yeah. religious regime there. They haven't become less conservative. I mean, they have, you know, elections where some parties are a little bit more conservative and some are a little bit more progressive, but it's, you know, it doesn't right. seem to have anything to do with the economic sanctions. But on, a, on the good side, they do generally, uh, they do hate us now. Each generation that comes up, they have a clear cut reason to hate the West. So, Thanks for that. Well, so they, hated you. they hated yeah, they you hated before us. that oh, because yeah. of the overthrow yeah. of Mossadegh and the well, installation of the Shah. This is all but, yeah. super hate. 
This is Super a whole hate. new level. Yeah. This is the Porsche of hate. Yeah. If hate was China, no, but but you get what I'm saying. I mean, now they have a very visceral, specific reason. This is the Porsche de Rossi of hate. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so bringing me to my concluding points about whether or not sanctions work. Um, you know, again, getting back to the definition of work, what are the real objectives of sanctions? Right. Is it to bring about regime change or any of those things that I mentioned before, like political change in the target country? Mm-hmm. Or is it for domestic purposes only, internal domestic purposes? Mm-hmm. Um the question has been asked, do, do they work for 100 years? And, and as we said earlier, the answer is clear that they don't work, at least in terms of the stated objective. So there must be a yeah. reason why they keep getting used. Right. Um, and not only keep getting used, but get used more and more often. And touted, bragged about. Yeah. yeah. The use of sanctions doubled in the 1990s and the 2000s <laughs> compared with the period from 1950 to 1985. Right. And then by the 2010s, it had doubled again. God damn. So despite evidence that they don't work, or right. no evidence that they do work. Exactly. The use of them has been breeding like rabbits. Um And, you know, most people think they don't work. Um, Lee Jones, again, uh, he says, My numerous interactions with European policymakers whilst researching this book further underscored the primacy of international and domestic audiences over Mm. any concern with domestic effects in the ostensible target states. One British official commented that the EU did not monitor the impact of its sanctions because member state governments viewed the conclusion of tortuous European Council negotiations to impose restrictive measures as their real achievement. In other cases, another official stated sanctions are imposed to appease international partners like the US or even the African Union. This Mm -hmm. would again render monitoring their effects on target states pointless. In the EU, at least, sanctions seem largely to serve expressive goals, to broadcast so-called European values, to inject content into an otherwise moribund common security and foreign policy, and to Mm -hmm. create an image of coherence and activeness. As another official put it, the EU's approach is, I sanction, therefore I am. Put simply, if sanctions ostensibly intended to coerce a target government are instead being used for other international or domestic purposes, the state in question and its population are being instrumentalised for reasons that potentially have very little to do with them. This is a clear violation of Kant's categorical imperative to treat other people only as ends and never a means to some other end. It implies that for the sake of broadcasting their supposed moral virtues, 
Western leaders are inflicting deeply unethical suffering on others. This ethical violation is not excused by the shift to smart sanctions. The advocates of smart sanctions suggest that focusing on a small number of those responsible for objectionable policies vitiates ethical considerations, building on an ethic imported perhaps from criminal law. They suggest that it is reasonable to inflict suffering on the guilty. Yet, as we've seen, targeted sanctions typically inflict direct or indirect collateral damage, undermining this defence. Moreover, if the targets are being punished merely to satisfy senders' domestic or international purposes, they're still being instrumentalised, and the categorical imperative applies regardless of their number. And so uh, let's let's just recap what he's suggesting here yeah. is that... Um, they are used for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's to look good. It gets back to your, well, it's just to look like we're doing something. Yeah. That's it. It's just, well, right. we we have to look good. We have to say we did something, so we're going to do something. We don't care if it works or not, We so we say we did something. I can point at it. Yeah. Secondly, they do it in, in Europe in particular, and I think this is true also in Australia, to appease mm. the U.S., Right. Same reason we got involved in the Iraq War and the War on Terrorism and all this kind of the, the trade war against China last year or a couple of Trump years, whatever there was. It's mm-hmm. it's to look it's so the U.S. don't uh, punish us with right because we will additional tariffs. Oh, and you yeah. do, you do, oh. you have yeah. punished us. Uh, yeah. In tariff negotiations, you know, we we get punished from time to time with, you know, impl- implementation, implementation of tariffs. Exactly. Um, and as he points out, the like, target, okay, so they're targeting, like, he, like we'll get into the legality of it in a second, but uh, targeting even the rich guys. They go, oh, we're taking this billionaire's yacht and we're freezing this billionaire's funds because he's a billionaire. Right. Well, is that moral? Is that legal? Can you? What, has he gone to trial? Can you take somebody? Can you morally or legally take somebody's shit? They haven't without a trial. I guess if it's on the world stage, the answer is yes. You shouldn't be able to. Well, can you do it morally or legally, even in, in the world matter? stage? Well, it, does it matter? Should should it matter? We're getting into real politic here, which is one of those quagmire uh, subjects, but our terms, but whatever. But um, you can you can argue about it. You can have two philosophers get together and debate about it all day. And I'm sure that would be very exciting. But at the end of the day, it's done. It's done a lot. We do it. We're not going to stop doing it. It is a part of the world. Um, brutal answer. But there you go. Well, the other aspect of this, uh, the other reason, and, and the, the two books that I read didn't really touch on this a great deal. Um, you should write one. Some, yeah, I should. Uh, and maybe I'm, I'm being overly skeptical here, but uh, I've said this before. I find it difficult to believe that there aren't lobbyists mm-hmm. uh, in the United States and other geographies as well in the West that aren't uh, pushing for sanctions because their clients uh, uh, will gain economic opportunities in the case of sanctions. Yes. I I was going to ask you, let's bring Cicero in here. If you've got all these sanctions and they're all economic by nature, 
money still has to flow. Goods still have to flow. If it's not going to be the way it normally is because of the sanctions, someone else has got to pick it up. So the question is, who is benefiting from various sanctions on different countries? Yeah. Somebody is. Somebody is. If we know that sanctions tend not to work, if we know right. that sanctions tend to be an, you know, an act of total war that can harm or kill mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, mm-hmm. millions of people, used broadly over time, over many countries, and yet we continue to use them at an ever-increasing pace, there's something driving that. What is the engine exactly. that is driving the ever-increasing use of sanctions by the West? As you said before, like one third of the country is under economic sanctions. Of the world, yeah. It, 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 there must be people profiting from this. Somebody is. I'm- and I, and I, 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 you know, just stands to reason to me that if if there is profit to be made, we're not the first people to work that out. That there are there are business people that are lobbyists. The same way that war is, uh, you know, a profit opportunity. Sanctions yeah. is a profit opportunity. Um, they've been doing this drugs. for a long time. Yes. They know how this works. I mean, and to, to answer Robert Sullivan's point, well, people aren't, well, Americans aren't that smart. There are smart people in America, right. uh, as there are everywhere. And you've got to believe that some of these people who are lobbyists know what they're doing, man. Yes. This is their job. Yes. This is their business is to- con- they get paid commission. Yeah, so. there are massive retainers and commissions. Exactly. exactly. Is to is to engineer the U.S. government into doing things domestically and internationally that will mm-hmm. benefit their clients. That's Somebody. literally the job definition of a lobbyist, right? Exactly. To, that's to to manipulate the government into doing things that will benefit your client. That's your job. That's what yes. that's what you spend all your day thinking about. That's what you get paid millions of dollars to do. Forget rule, forget laws. They want results. This is the, the Paul Manaforts of the world, right? Right. This is yeah. the, you know, the Rudy Giuliani's of the world. This is the, the I don't know who else, um, yeah. Ray Cohn, Roy Cohn right. of the world. A lawyer, not a lobbyist. But anyway, you get my point. The, yeah. the people whose livelihoods are based around manipulating the government to do things that will benefit their clients. And if there's money to be made oh. out of sanctions, then there are people thinking about how to create sanctions. There just has to be. I mean, it's yes. where there's smoke, there's got to be fire in this instance. Absolutely. Um, hello. Oh, look at look at this. My Who's sexy this? wife just walked in. <laughs> hello. Look at this, look at this one denim. piece. Yeah, it's a new outfit. It's a 70s one-piece Charlie's Angel. Charlie's Angel. Cam's Angel. There we go. Oh, lifting a leg like she's going to pee on me. I'm going to put sanctions on you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ray's wife has already put sanctions on him. She won't let him buy a new car. Good. Good. Go Heather. What do you mean? What do you mean good? Okay. All right. Bye. She needs to talk. Bye. Bye, denim lady. He says, bye, denim lady. She's yeah, just a denim woman with evil on her mind. She's just a denim woman. She's gonna take you from behind. Yeah, strap on. The second verse has, but we don't have to go into that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, let's finish up with legality yeah. issues. Um, yeah. I read a book 
No, there's a there's a book. Yeah, it's a sort of a collection of speeches um, called "Economic Sanctions: uh, Economic Sanctions Under International Law, Unilateralism, Multilateralism, Legitimacy, and Consequences," 2015, by. Ali Morossi and Marissa Bassett, they uh, both ladies work at the Hague Center for Law and Arbitration. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it, there was a there was a uh, symposium, I guess, of international legal experts gathered right. together and talked about economic sanctions and the legality of them. And so they've got their their talks and they've edited this uh, book together. And the, mm-hmm. um, the, the key one here is by Professor Dato Dr. Ramat bin Mohammed. He's a Malaysian legal scholar, and uh, his speech was under a chapter called Unilateral Sanctions in International Law, A Quest for Legality. And um, here's some of his conclusions. Unilateral sanctions are impermissible under international law, as the UN Charter addresses only collective economic measures. Application of unilateral sanctions violates basic principles of the UN Charter and certain other important legal instruments. It imposes suffering and deprivation on innocent civilians of other countries, including mass human rights violations, and deprives them of their right to development and self-determination. The African, um, the Asian African Legal Consultative Organization affirms that unilateral sanctions imposed against third parties violate the principles enshrined in the UN Charter and other principles recognised through soft law, such as the right to development and the Friendly Relations Declaration. The imposition of unilateral and secondary sanctions by states deprives the peoples of targeted state of basic human rights and affects their right to development. The right to self-determination puts upon states not just the duty to respect and promote the right, but also the obligation to refrain from any forcible action which deprives peoples of the enjoyment of such a right. Coercive economic sanctions affect the growth trajectory of the individuals and the economy as a whole, and the burden of sanctions should not be put on the succeeding generations. The international community recognises that disputes should be resolved peacefully and bilaterally, failing which there shall be measures taken to address the issue through various international forums. The argument by sanctions imposing states that sanctions constitute countermeasures is unjustifiable in the absence of actual injury. The foundational principles that regulate and govern international relations are stated in the UN Charter as well as the 1970 Declaration of Friendly Relations and Cooperation Among States. These include the principles of sovereign equality of states, respect for and dignity of national sovereignty, the non-use of force, non-intervention in the internal affairs of states and territorial integrity, peaceful settlement of international disputes, cooperation among states, and fulfilling in good faith obligations assumed under international law. Unilateral sanctions violate these principles and are thus impermissible under international law. So, He's not wrong. Well... I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no longer practicing as an international legal scholar, but everything that I've read about sanctions over the last ten years seems to concur with uh, Dr. Bin Mohammed's analysis there that it's, it's just, it's illegal under international laws. The UN Security Council can apply sanctions, and that's it. Mm-hmm. 
Now, of course, the problem you've got is that, as we know, any country, any one of the five permanent members that has a veto isn't going to allow sanctions to be applied against one of their allies, and every country is one of their allies, usually. Right. Um, uh, or against themselves, obviously, in the case right. of right. Russia. Um, so what these countries have done, the US, Australia, UK, etc., have, have passed laws domestically that make the using sanctions legal domestically, right. but they're illegal internationally. Now, the, right. the, the, the problem that we have then is you say, okay, well, Russia invaded Ukraine and that's a criminal act. That's true. Mm-hmm. But the US then applied sanctions against Iraq. That's an illegal act. The US had applied sanctions to Russia before they invaded Ukraine as a result right. of Crimea and Georgia, but those are illegal as well. The U.S. is applying sanctions against Iran. That's illegal. So when you're uh, uh, committing criminal acts under international law, your ability to then accuse other countries of committing criminal acts and saying we're going to punish you for that when you're also committing criminal acts under international law, like it, the whole thing is meaningless. It falls apart. Yeah. So as as we've said millions of times on our shows, the only solution here that I can see anyway is to reform the veto system in the Security Council. Yes. Security yes. Council needs to be reformed, needs to be fixed, um, and that's not going to happen unless we all put pressure on our governments to mm-hmm. fix the Security Council. Yeah. And, of course, we're not going to do that because we're fucking sleepwalking over the cliff like a bunch of lemmings. So right. um, don't know what to tell you. Make me global dictator and I will fix everything. That's so basically I, it. I've rigged the votes. I've voted several times. I don't know what – I mean, I voted so many times you can call me a Republican. I've done it. I don't you know. can't even get your do. wife to let you buy a car. How, many, how are you going to get me elected? You're I'm the not, worst I'm, campaign manager I'm, in history. I'm not the best. I'm not the best. I, I would like to end this what what I thought was a very good show on a very down negative note. Um, CNBC says that Putin put away six hundred and thirty billion dollars before he launched this attack, which should cover him as far as sanctions for the next two years. So we could be talking about this subject for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah, I've read a lot of good analysis in the last week from a variety of economists mm-hmm. on the impact to Russia um, this year. My takeaway is no one fucking knows, which exactly. is true of most economists talking about anything, really. Right. It's way too complicated. No one knows. I mean, there are forecasts of 10 or 20% yeah. declines in their economy. Other people are saying they'll be fine. They can hold it out. Depends on oil and gas revenues. Like the EU is saying they're going to – get all their sure. members to agree to yeah. stop buying Russian oil two years from now. Yeah. I mean... So there's your two years. Yeah, yeah, but like who the fuck knows what's going to happen in the next two years. I mean, yeah. so... Or much less two weeks. Yeah. yeah. So it's it, it, no one really knows how this, this is going to play out. Um, everyone who... I mean, the, the, the media landscape is just completely full of people guessing shit. Uh, they're yeah. guessing about, or like, how's the war going? You know, oh, I saw an article the other day. He said, if, um, if this is Russia losing, I'd hate to see them winning. <laughs> um, you know, we've been hearing every day for the last 70 days that Russia's getting their asses kicked in and are losing. 
Um, yeah. But they're still there and doubling down by the sounds of it. They're bringing in their reservists, I think, they're expecting on May 9th. And and more important on a military uh, level, they are narrowing their scope. So Russians are adapting just like everyone else. They know exactly what they're doing. They have professionals. This isn't going to end anytime soon. And, you know, there's a good argument to be made that that's what they've always been doing, mm, mm-hmm. that they they did a, a, you know, what do you guys call it, a storm and thunder campaign or something. They yeah. rolled in, Expected. big wide, big wide scope, hitting yeah. a bunch of major cities, right. threw the place into turmoil, uh, you know, you know, Took out a bunch of important sites, got their army uh, uh, engaged in a very wide front, right. and then pulled back and focused on Donbass, which yeah. was their exactly. fo- you know, focus all along, which was to you know weaken, take out, hit the Ukrainian army, mm-hmm. and, uh, weaken its forces, weaken its resolve, take out a lot of its uh, capabilities, and then go and hit. Uh, the land bridge between Mariupol and Donbass that they always intended to um, uh, 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 achieve. So, yeah. but I don't fucking know. I mean, I, I, I'm honest, guessing as much as anyone is. I mean, no one yeah. knows. Yeah. Well, but I, I do get amused yeah. by the amount of very, very confident coverage out there, but oh. everyone's just pulling numbers out yes. of their asses, casualty yeah. numbers, this kind of stuff. It's all just fog of yeah. war stuff, you know. Well, I, I'm going to be honest, and I appreciate that you're, you're not, you and I are saying, look, we have no fucking idea. We're watching like everyone else as it unfolds. We do our podcasting, not unlike Russia in war. You make a plan, you implement the plan, the plan goes to shit, you regroup and you look around and go, what the fuck are we going to do now? That's pretty much every show that we do. So we'll see how it goes. And by the way, it's pretty much every war that's ever been fought, except Good maybe point. Gulf War One. Yeah, and maybe Storm every marriage. Norman, I'll give him credit. They were but she massively. Let you get a car. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. That's life, right? Yeah, you yeah, can go you adapt, plane, and then you know you you yeah. pivot as the startup. <laughs> when things pivot. go, when things don't get a plan, or you know maybe they are going to plan, and we're just pretending they're we not. Just we don't, don't know it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the show. That's. I hope that's um, given people a little bit more of a background on the utility of sanctions. Bottom line is they don't work and they're probably being used for reasons other than their stated reasons. Um, That's my conclusion. And I want to cut, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You're not the director here. You don't get to say no, no. cut. I, want I get to call the, cut. No, no, no. It's not different cut. I want. Oh, you're talking the about the tip of your penis. You, you, no. I'm not a. Br- I'm not going to do a briz on you. Me. I tell you, it, you'll, you'll love it. You'll love it. You feel free. You'll feel longer. Kind of hey, looks what? longer. Why you, don't you, you just hold my penis and let me think about it? <laughs> <laughs> I tried that last time. It, it didn't. <laughs> Didn't seem to. Oh, and you can get more of this if you meet us out west and near the Grand Canyon. Don't, we're not inviting people to come and meet oh, us. We're not coming. Stay where no, you can. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm a people person. I handle people. All right, we're out of here.
Bullshit. 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 Bullsh